But look with me in Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion which may be a proper name, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Father, one of the benefits of preaching and teaching through books is that we discern the burden of the human authors who wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit. And it is clear that one of Paul's central burdens in this letter is unity. Not uniformity, but unity in the Lord. And so, Lord, we recognize that the reason an entire letter would be devoted to such an important issue is that it has been a tendency for over 2,000 years for your church to divide, which harms its witness. We pray today that your spirit would do his work of bringing the unity that we already have in Jesus to bear in our church relationships, our family relationships, and even in our marriages. We ask this in Jesus' name. And for his sake. Amen. On July the 13th, I received a request from an old friend to pray for his brother, who is a pastor. In his own words, he said, My brother is in a horrible situation. It's hell. In fact, his brother is close to having a nervous breakdown. In short, law enforcement, legal authorities, approached his brother, the pastor, a couple of weeks ago and told him that his youth minister was under investigation for some alleged crimes that they believe he had committed. But the pastor was not to say anything to him or it would impede the the investigation. Well, just a few days later, the youth minister fatally harmed himself. And now the church wants the pastor to resign and is even warning him that he will never pastor again. Well, just an update, a few days later, my friend contacted me and told me that the sheriff came and spoke to the church. And the sheriff assured the church that the pastor had done everything by the book. He had done everything the authorities had called him to do, and if he had done otherwise, it would have completely messed up the investigation. But then, and this is my point, he told the church, the sheriff did, 
that the way this church had been gossiping and creating a mob scene, and because of churches like that one, that was the reason he wasn't a Christian. Well, a divided church can never take the ultimate responsibility for one's unbelief. The Bible does not allow for that. If one does not believe the gospel, it's not for lack of evidence. It's not because of other people. It's because of one's own sinful heart. But it must take part of it. A divided church must take some form of responsibility. And that's why Paul, in this text, is back to the issue he first addressed in chapter 1. Where he said in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether when I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul knows that a divided church destroys its witness. If you'll remember back in chapter 2, he said, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's God's strategy for evangelizing the world, the church in the midst of this twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's our calling. And division eclipses the light. It's that simple. And when people see in a church anger and slander and the inability to reconcile with one another, if they see in Christian marriages that, they do not see Jesus as beautiful. And that's why Paul is taking this on again as he's closing up this letter. And in this particular case, with three imperatives, three commands in three verses. The first command in verse 1 is to stand. The second command in verse 2 is to agree. And the third command in verse 3 is to help. First thing we see here, he calls them to stand in the Lord. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love... And long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now the word therefore clearly shows us that there's a close connection, isn't there? Between what he's saying here and what he just got through saying. What do we see in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3? It really pertains to the entire chapter, but he summed it up at the end of chapter 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. From there we await a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. And then he speaks about the fact that one day Christ is going to come and transform our lowly bodies by the same power by which he will subject all things to himself. That's where history is headed. That is our future as believers. 
And Paul is essentially saying here, let nothing distract us from the only story that will endure in that day. Everything else outside of that story has a termination day. Why would you invest your life into those things that will not endure? To say it another way, in spite of present appearances, everything outside of Christ is dead. Everything in Christ is very much alive. And we are to invest in those things. And that was the mindset. Of the Apostle Paul. And that's really behind, I think, the intense emotion, pathos, and love and commitment that he has for these brothers and sisters here in Philippi. Notice the language. He says, my brothers who I long or I love and long for. I mean, note the emotion here. The more you give yourself away to others, the more you will love them. And vice versa, the more you love them, the more you will give yourself away to them. But do you see what he's doing? Paul is giving us his own personal example of what living in a manner worthy of the gospel looks like. We've already seen in chapter 1 where he, he says to the believers there that I yearn for you with the very affections of Christ. We saw that those affections are actually the affections of Christ that are being communicated by the Spirit of Christ through this man who has been yielded to Christ and filled with his Spirit. And we've seen, though, that this kind of life makes you vulnerable to pain. That kind of life where you give yourself away makes you very vulnerable to pain. We saw last or a couple of weeks ago, in chapter 3, verse 18, that he was writing with tears. With tears. But for the Christian, there's only two possible courses of action. Two possible ways of life. The first way, and I think it's the most common way, is to cultivate a small heart. The benefit of cultivating a small heart is that it's safe. It protects you from pain and sorrow. The other path is to cultivate a cruciform heart. A heart that seeks to model the very heart of Christ who gave himself away for the redemptive good of others. But be warned, when you do this, you become susceptible to pain. To sorrow. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. I would say it will be. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will change. It will not be broken. 
It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Paul's heart was broken time and time again. Just read his letters. Read 2 Corinthians sometime. But on the other hand, no one had an enlarged heart and joy more than the Apostle Paul. Notice the language here. He says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy. He found his joy in giving his life away to others. Now, joy is the gift of the Spirit, isn't it? It's the fruit of the Spirit. But the Spirit uses means. We were created for community. We were created for relationships. It's part of what it means to be the image of God. And so an isolated believer, and there's some of you right now, and there's no one I have in mind. It was me, and it has been me at times. Some of you are living isolated lives. And it's, it feels safe. You're protecting yourself. You're guarding yourself. But to use Lewis's language, you've put your heart in a coffin. And it's hamstringing your capacity for real joy. Notice this language, my crown. The crown refers to the victor's crown that was given to the victor at the end of a race. Now, even our salvation is spoken of as a crown, the crown of righteousness. There's no greater crown than the crown of salvation, which is all of grace coming to those who recognize their sin, who recognize that God has made provision for their sin in the Son of God who came as our substitute. Living the life as our substitute in our place. Dying on the cross. Taking God's judgment in our place. Being raised from the grave as our substitute. That we might have the forgiveness of sins. That we might have a new status before God as as forgiven and righteous. That is the crown of righteousness. But outside of that crown, I can't think of a better crown than having those... You've have, you have impacted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you have crowns in that way? There's no greater investment of your life than that. Paul is our example. But here's the question. How can Paul, and I ask myself all the time this question as I read him, how can he be so concerned and have such love for people that... In a a very real sense, he didn't know that well. He didn't spend a lot of time with the Philippians. Well, the answer, Jesus' investment for him had changed his life. And this so captured his heart. It so captured his imagination that he could see his spiritual family, the church, for all their flaws as his joy and as his crown. Loving them in all their imperfections. And so having exemplified what it means to stand firm, Paul calls them to stand firm. Again, we saw that verb in that command in chapter 1 verse 27. To stand firm in the Lord with one spirit, with one mind. Now what does this mean? It seems a a bit uh, ambiguous, a, a bit broad. 
to stand firm. But again, context is king. What did Paul just tell us? He says, there is a coming day when we will come into our inheritance in full and experience that inheritance as citizens of heaven with resurrection bodies as the Lord Jesus Christ subjects all things to himself. All his enemies are brought underneath the feet of Christ and he will usher in shalom in all its fullness. And and Paul is essentially saying, stay the course on the things that you will delight in on that day. That's what it means to stand firm. But clearly, at this present moment in Philippi, there were at least two believers who weren't standing firm. Well, they were standing firm, but they were not standing firm in the Lord. They were standing firm in their pride. As James says in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and arguments and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war with you? James is saying this is the reason. There's not multiple reasons. This is the reason. You have passions that are within you that are controlling you. Inordinate passions. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. Uh, Likely not physical murder, but spiritual murder. There's hate. You're willing to harm that person with your tongue, your attitude. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And Paul, in so many words, is addressing this very issue. And so we see, first of all, that we are to stand in the Lord. But secondly, notice, we are to agree in the Lord. Notice with me in verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Verse 3, women who have labored side by side. Imagine you're sitting there in Philippi, and this letter just arrived. And all of a sudden, you hear your name being called out. This is intended to send shockwaves throughout the church at Philippi, but throughout the church for 2,000 years, that this is serious business. Women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, whose names are in the book of life. We don't know much about these two women, except they have been famous for 2,000 years. But here are the things we do know. Here are the facts. They were members of the church at Philippi. Secondly, they had labored co-labored with the Apostle Paul in the gospel. Thirdly, their names were written in the book of life. Paul is absolutely convinced these are believers. That they were born again. They were converted believers. But fourth, and yet, a damaging divide had happened between these two women. Which reminds us that godly people are susceptible to this. 
Let me say that again. Godly people are susceptible to this. In fact, their disagreement may have been the central reason the Apostle Paul writes the letter known as Philippians. And the reason I say that, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, this tactic of calling out believers by name for a negative purpose is very rare in the Apostle Paul. He'll call out a heretic in a heartbeat. But here he's calling out believers, godly believers. And this reveals that this is a serious issue that we kind of yawn at because we're so used to it. It should shock us that there is disagreements among us. Secondly, and you don't pick this up in the English, but the phrase agree with each other is nearly identical to the phrase that we read in chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Being of the same mind. Now we saw there that the obstacle to unity is not difference, different opinions. The reality is if you have 300 people in a church, you have 300 opinions. You have 300 preferences. Paul is not calling us to uniformity here. Where we all have to agree and believe exactly the same and have the same opinions. It's not legitimate differences of opinion. That's the problem. In that passage, Paul said the problem is selfish ambition and conceit. And a lack of lowliness of mind as demonstrated in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't go away by osmosis. The gospel has to come to bear. But when the gospel attaches itself. Now this is, this is so important. But we sometimes make it a cliche statement. When the gospel attaches itself as the power of God unto salvation. To any area of our lives. It brings with it change, not at the, just at the behavioral level. It brings with it change in our deepest desires. And so when that change is not taking place, as a believer, you can diagnose your heart and say, the gospel's not taking effect. I am not allowing the gospel to attach itself to this area of my life. And by the way, that's why relationships in the church are so indispensable for learning how the gospel is to be applied horizontally. Because I can really believe in my isolate, when I'm isolating myself, I can think I'm more mature than I really am. But who am I loving in isolation? I'm loving me. That's not what the gospel produces, self-love. The gospel produces vertical love, which reveals itself in horizontal love. In this regard, in fact, consider four facts that I think we can discern from Scripture about the importance of human relationships in the church and why God wants us to have those relationships. First of all, you were created for community, you were created for relationships. Indeed, you were redeemed for community. 
as we've seen, God is a, a God who exists in perfect community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we image Him when we are in community with one another. In fact, the night before Jesus was crucified, He's praying for those who would believe in His name. That's the language He used. And here's what He prayed in John 17, 21. That they may all be one Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that also they may be in us. So that the world, get this, when that unity is there, the world may believe that you have sent me. When the church is one, that serves, Jesus says, as a great defense of the gospel. Of course, you could make the converse statement as well. When the church is divided... It communicates a false message about the gospel. Secondly, in one sense, all relationships are challenging. That ought to give you hope. You're not the only one. All human relationships are challenging. Think about this. Right off the hills of Genesis 1 and 2, where God created male and female... We have that debacle in the garden in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve sin, which brings confusion and frustration to now to the human relationship. And now in Genesis 3, for the first time, Adam and Eve are engaging in accusation and blame. That becomes the new normal. And then... In Genesis 4, it escalates because sin never stays stagnant. We have the first murder. Cain murdering his brother, Abel. And though most of us will never commit physical murder, Jesus says we have a very real capacity to murder people in our hearts. And so now we live naturally by default between the continuum of murder Accusation and blame. That's our new reality. But thirdly, God in this Romans 8.28 way uses and keeps us in these difficult relationships for a redemptive purpose. Yes, our hope in every one of these relationships, is that God would change the relationship. But that hope is not high enough. Though he can do that, and will often do that, God's intent is that the relationship change you. You ever thought about that? We're never a victim in that situation. Now, there are victims in a fallen world, of course. But in this particular case, when you're in difficult circumstances, God just may be using that person to expose sin in your heart. Like Paul Tripp said on the screen. It's rare that he will hear a a man say, my biggest problem in my marriage is me. And the wife say, my biggest problem is me. Generally, it's them pointing fingers at one another. And so God keeps us in these difficult relationships to change us. 
what he will do is that he uses this person and this difficult relationship by revealing our hearts, our weaknesses, our idols. And he does that to bring us to the end of ourselves. Because until you've been brought to the end of yourself, you will never appreciate grace. It'll be just some abstract cliche that you read on a bumper sticker. Until you've been brought to the end of yourself, the gospel will not be good news to you. It'll be just some message that you have some intellectual acquaintance with that you use as your assurance for salvation. But it won't be your life. But when you're brought to the end of yourself, the gospel becomes good news. And weak and needy people finding their hope in God's grace in Jesus Christ, that is the foundation for a mature and growing and godly relationship. That brings us to the fourth aspect of these of what God wants us to understand about relationships from Scripture, Scripture offers a sure hope for every relationship. Jesus was willing to be the rejected son so that our families would know reconciliation. Jesus was willing to become a forsaken friend so that we could have loving relationships. In other words, Jesus went, underwent a state of humiliation so that reconciliation could be achieved in two ways. First and foremost, with God. Now, how is reconciliation achieved with God by Christ's death? Well, alienation with God is two-way. On God's end, he is alienated from sinners because he's too holy. And there is a holy wrath on sin. There is alienation from our end because we don't love him. We're enemies to him, Paul says. So Jesus Christ went to the cross for enemies, and he took the wrath. And now reconciliation with God is made, and that becomes the foundation, the ground for our reconciliation with each other. In other words, how do I know I am walking in the vertical reconciliation that Christ has achieved for me? I am walking in the horizontal reconciliation with my brother and my sister. Unless we ask in our relationships, why bother? The answer is because God did. Because God did. And Paul gives us a brief but very deep insight here on how to deal with difficult relationships based on the gospel. Notice what he says here. We are to learn to agree in the Lord. Agree is literally... To think the same thing. That verb, get this, occurs ten times in Philippians. It's only four chapters. Ten times. But here's the question. How can two people in a church who are fighting, who are arguing, who, are, who think differently on matters, as in this case, how can they be brought to think in the same way? Again, Paul's not arguing for uniformity. He's not saying that you've got to have the same opinions. You've got to have the same preferences. It's not what he's saying. Paul says our unity 
is in the Lord. Don't overlook that. It's in the Lord. In other words, it would be nonsensical for any party, any person in a dispute to insist on their rights when Christ the Lord did not insist on his rights. Philippians chapter 2. Or as Paul writes in Romans 15, get this. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He absorbed the debt they owed so that there might be relationship. That's the gospel way. Indeed, this phrase, in the Lord, I just want you to see this. It has played a critical role in the book of Philippians. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, look with me. I love this. Paul writes, verse 14, Most of the brothers, have, having become con- confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They've become confident in the Lord. Look in chapter 2, verse 19. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus. So they're contextual. We see the Lord there is referring to Jesus. To send Timothy to you soon. Notice verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly I myself will come also. Notice verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. And then as we saw in verse 1, stand firm thus in the Lord. And next week we're going to see rejoice in the Lord. And here in verse 2, they are to agree in the Lord. Now what does that mean in the Lord? This is a realm Our citizenship is in heaven. And what makes heaven heaven is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. To use Paul's language in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. That is where our citizenship is. That is where our our life is to be found. Our life is not here. Our appetites are not here. They're in the Lord. And when a person understands... That that realm is where we abide. It makes our circumstances, it makes our relationships tolerable and able to... It, it, we're allowed to thrive in them because of the Lordship of Christ coming to bear in those circumstances. In other words, in every relationship, in every circumstance... Ask this question. It's the Galatians 2.14 principle. What does it mean to walk in light of the truth of the gospel given this set of circumstances? Of course, in the gospel, Christ did not insist on his rights, but made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a servant, to die for those who did not deserve it. Asked another way, how do I, how do I respond in any set of circumstances... How do I respond in any particular relationship given the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord over my mind, over my motives, 
over my words, over my actions. And this reminds us that that our circumstances and our relationships are never spiritually neutral. Never. It always boils down to lordship. When I am in a disagreement and I refuse to humble myself, I am saying at that moment, you are not Lord over me. It's an act of treason. It's an act of rebellion, but it's become our new normal. And it's not normal. Paul is trying to shock us, to wake us up. So in this case, when two believers disagree... They must act under the authority, under the lordship of Christ, and they seek to submit their mind, their motives to Scripture, which is the word of Christ, and the litmus test for every disagreement. And yet sometimes it may require a third party. That brings us to verse 3. Where Paul has told them to stand in the Lord. He has told them to agree in the Lord. But sometimes we need a third party help in the Lord. Notice verse 3. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. Uh, That word, if you were to spell it, S-Y-Z-G-U-S, Sigagus. It could be a proper noun. It could be someone's name. We don't know. There's been a lot of. Going back and forth on this, but it can be translated true companion or yoke fellow. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Do you see what he's saying here? Earlier in Corinth, there was a disagreement where... Brothers in the church were suing other brothers. And it was causing devastation on their witness. Because again, a church that fights and argues eclipses the beauty and glory of Christ. And here's what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute? Again, there's a place for third party counseling, if you will, when two cannot get alone. But what he's saying here is that every member has responsibility to every other member to ensure that there is unity and reconciliation and forgiveness. But what often happens is one member goes to another member and instead of that member trying to play third party role... That member exasperates the problem. That is so foreign to Scripture. It is foreign to the gospel. It's an act of treason, in fact. You're saying at that moment, my rights, your rights, are more important than Christ's reputation. And so Paul gives us the formula here. Because unity is fundamental to our mission. Of course, the main reason for this is that our message is a message of reconciliation. That is our message, 2 Corinthians 5. And how can unbelievers be convinced that Jesus Christ reconciles sinners to God when we can't be reconciled to each other? 
And that plays down to the marriage level as well. And that's why apart from an attack on the scriptures themselves, which is an attack attack on the authority of God, I think the greatest danger in the church for 2,000 years is whatever attacks its unity. And that goes for Christian marriage. And so as we close, I want us to ask ourselves, I thought a lot about the close this week, the conclusion, but I think it's just best to ask us this, to get very practical. What relationships in this church, we can apply it to our neighborhoods, our families, our marriages, what relationships do I need to come to an agreement in the Lord with? So that Jesus Christ will be seen as beautiful to those around me. It's a vital question. Let me just tell you, as offended as you might be in a set of circumstances, in a particular relationship, it pales in comparison. Because one day, Christ is going to subdue all things to himself. And all those things we worried about but are outside the realm of Christ's lordship, it's going to be brought underneath his feet anyway. So why not get on his page now while there is still time? Let's pray. Father of mercy, thank you that you're a God of mercy. We have such a real tendency to to bicker and fight and want our way, lose sight of what's really important, your glory in the face of your Son. Forgive us for being more concerned with our rights than his name. Forgive us for being more zealous for our reputation, our preferences, than his name. Thank you that he came to die for the likes of us. We certainly didn't deserve it. But Lord, now having died for our sins, we pray that by spirit, he would transform us and enable us to overcome those sins he died for. That his glory would be revealed in how we interact and love one another. And Father, there, if there's anyone here today that's never trusted in Christ, Paul speaks about agreeing in the Lord. The first step is agreeing with the Lord. Agreeing that we have sinned against you. And that our sin deserves judgment. It deserves death. It deserves hell. And agreeing that you have made a way by sending your son to take the hell for us. Take the judgment for us. And I pray, Lord, today, if there's any here today that's never trusted in Christ, that they would agree with you that Christ is Lord and King. And that they would embrace him by faith and have their sins forgiven. Lord, we pray that you would make Fisherville a church that's known for its agreement in the Lord. It's unity in the Lord.
We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.